All right, good morning again. I'm excited to be talking with you through this sermon series that we're doing. If you remember, this it was originally going to be a one-week sermon uh, that we did last week, and I just it grew and grew until I realized it needed to be a three-sermon series. So we're actually doing the middle of that one sermon today. So rather than catch you, then briefly catch you up, I'm going to preach that first sermon again and then move into the first one, the, the second part. So uh, what we've been talking about is uh, our New Year's resolution that we've made as a congregation to be a congregation of people who love our neighbors. And so we're using this key passage in Luke 10 to understand what Jesus wants us to do when he tells us to love our neighbors. And the passage begins with this conversation between Jesus and a religious lawyer. We don't really have the equivalent today, but this is an expert in the religious law. And it says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. So this is the part that we focused on in this command. And really, if I were going to summarize last week's sermon in two points, it would be this. We start out by saying that God has commanded us to love whoever is next to us. So we talked about the fact that in some ways we misinterpret this passage a lot of times because we think it says we're supposed to love everyone. And then if we're supposed to love everyone, nobody can actually love everyone. So then we specialize and we say, well, I'm going to love this kind of person or these people in this situation but, and that's going to be my specialty. And if, as I love that group of people, then I can check the love my neighbor box. And that leads to situations where we'll love people on the other side of the world and fail to love the people that actually live right next door. I told the story of my dad in a church when he was a youth pastor who they, they had a very strong missions emphasis in, towards missions in Africa. But they, there, was a, there was this understanding that they shouldn't allow any African-Americans in the youth group. And so a love for people in another place is that idea that we're going to specialize in missional loving, but we're going to fail to love people right next to us. When Jesus doesn't, say, doesn't actually change the definition of neighbor, he removes excuses for loving our neighbors. He basically says, whoever's near you, that's who you're supposed to love. And notice this key part that we can't dodge. He says that keeping that command is essential to living the kind of life that lasts forever. This isn't old covenant stuff because it comes up more in the new covenant than it did in the old. This is, there is no version of eternal life in which you don't love God and love your neighbors. That kind of life doesn't last. And so what it means to be God's people and what it means to be part of his kingdom is to love God and to love the people who are next to us. That was last week's sermon. So, as we go into this discussion, the bulk of the discussion when Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, it comes because the lawyer does a lawyer thing where he tries to qualify it. So the lawyer says, um, wanting to justify himself, asks, and who is my neighbor? And the goal here is that he wants to limit it. He wants to figure out, and we do this all the time. We, this is our, our favorite move in theological debates and in discussions about what it means to be a Christian. What's the bare minimum? What are the lowest qualifications that I have to meet? At what point is the box checked and I can move on and say that I've done that? 
So what he's looking for is a limited number of people. He wants to know, what, what's the limit on the number of people I have to love before I've loved my neighbor? What category of people do I have to love? And Jesus answers that question with a parable. And we're going to read that parable, but then what I want you to key in on, we're going to listen to the parable again and key in on the question that Jesus asks at the end. Because Jesus is not interested in asking this question. This is the wrong question. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he brought the man on his own donkey, uh, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of those three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Now, do you notice that that is a different question? Jesus has no interest in giving this man a limit on how many people uh, he's supposed to, live, to, supposed to love. He's not giving him like, a, okay, neighbor is 50 foot radius. So anyone who lives within 50 feet is a neighbor beyond that, they're not. He's not interested in that kind of, question, that kind of answer. The question, he answers the question that the guy should have asked, which was, what does it mean to love my neighbor? What does it look like to love my neighbors? Because he says, who, which one of these men, these three men that passed by the man on the road, which of them acted like a neighbor? Which of them did the thing that makes them a good neighbor? Which of them fulfilled the command? And that's the right question. The right question is, what does it mean to be a neighbor? That's what we need to understand. And that's what the parable is meant to teach us. Because as I talked last week about how we are commanded to love our neighbors and talked about how our neighbors are whoever's near us, no matter how uh, unsettling they are to you, I talked about the, the G.K. Chesterton quote when he said, we make our enemies, we make our friends, but God makes our neighbors. And I wish I could continue the quote because he puts it in a brilliant way, but basically to say that's kind of terrifying because your neighbor could be anybody. They could believe anything. They could, they could blast any kind of music at two in the morning. They could be any level of inconsiderate to the people around them. They could be exactly the opposite of your comfort zone. You don't have control over that. And you may have heard that and been really worried about what I was going to tell you in this command to love your neighbor. In fact, I had somebody tell me the way they felt about this command. and like, nope, that's not going to work. Not going to be able to do that. Um, and, and so as we talk about loving our neighbors, I want us to understand what we're actually signing on for and what Jesus tells us we're signing on for. Because the thing is, loving our neighbor in the, the way Jesus wants us to, it's, it involves a, walking a tightrope because we're pulled into two extremes. And we're going to talk about those two extremes. One extreme is we make loving our neighbor into too little and it doesn't actually mean anything. It's not actually doing anything. The other extreme is that we turn it into so much that we, can't, we turn it into something we can never do, and then we never do it because we can't. 
And we're, over, we're overwhelmed by what we think loving our neighbor means. And so in order to understand what Jesus is actually talking about, I first want to, I want to get rid of some of the things that we think it means, and then we'll go through and look at the example Jesus gives us in the Good Samaritan to find out what it really does mean to love our neighbors. The first thing it, mean, it does not mean, and this is awkward phrasing, but it's not my fault. Loving your neighbor doesn't mean not being a nuisance to them. Now, that's awkward phrasing, but that's because we have changed the meaning of a good neighbor in our cultures. It used to be being a good neighbor meant you did certain things. Like, if you're a good neighbor, if you bring a casserole to the people who've moved in, or, you know, you, you're, willing to offer, you're willing to give them a cup of sugar, you do things. Now, being a good neighbor is what you don't do. It's about you don't blare your music in the middle of the night. You don't let your dog bark at all hours. You don't leave your trash cans out to get blown around by the wind. You don't, it's about what you don't do. Being a good neighbor is, in a sense, like the best neighbor would be a neighbor that you didn't even know was there because they are never a nuisance. Anybody feel the pressure to be that kind of neighbor? Like, I'm the best neighbor when my neighbors don't even realize I'm around because I'm, I'm giving them no reason to be upset with me. So we actually define a good neighbor. And I, I would say this is kind of the cultural definition now. This is the way things have shifted because we've got this individual, individualistic idea that everybody should get to do what they want so everybody should stay out of everybody else's way so they can do what they want. So keep to yourself, right? Problem is, that's, you cannot define love as not doing something, right? It, it, loving your neighbor is doing something. It's not not doing something. After all, I, you know, the, the priest and the Levite were really good at not doing anything for that man, right? They did not make themselves a nuisance to him. That man on the ground probably had no idea they were even there. And so by that definition, the first two guys were great neighbors. You know, maybe they even tiptoed as they went past the man so as not to wake him out of his unconsciousness. But that's not what being a good neighbor means. And in the same vein, loving your neighbor doesn't just mean getting along with them. We often think, this is another negative thing. Basically, as long as I'm not in conflict with my neighbor. If we're on good terms, you know, we wave when we see each other, uh, when we both arrive home from work at the same time, that kind of thing. Like, like we're on good terms, right? We like them, they like us, we don't, but we have our own lives, we don't need to know each other, we're just, we're just not in conflict. And we kind of think, that's loving our neighbors. And if that's all, that you're, all that's happening, that is not at the point where you check the box to say, I've loved my neighbor. Just because we're not in conflict, we're getting along, right? That is not loving your neighbor. There's a, a verse from James, in the book of James, where he says, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? If, our, if being a neighbor simply means that I'm, you know, we're not in conflict, then does that actually, that's still a negative thing. That's just, I'm not causing harm, I'm not having conflict, but we're not actually doing anything for that person. And the command from Jesus is an affirmative command. It's a command to do something. And so just not being in conflict is not enough to check that box. And the last one in this vein is this. 
Loving your neighbor doesn't just mean praying for them. Now, it does involve praying for them. Prayer is an essential part of it. But sometimes what we do is we outsource loving our neighbor. We say, all right, I'll pray for them, and God will love my neighbor for me. I'll never actually talk to them, but I'll pray for them, and that's the same thing, right? Praying for them is enough to have loved my neighbor. That's not true. Because if, if that's what he wanted us to do, he would have just said, pray for your neighbor. But loving your neighbor is something more active than simply praying for them. So one of the tendencies that we have is when we're commanded to love our neighbors, one of the ways that we avoid that is we reduce it into something very small and easy and manageable so that we can, like the lawyer, we want to be able to check the box and move on to the things we really want to be doing or be able to move on with our day and the ways we want to spend our time. So as long as I'm not spending my time making obstacles for my neighbor, creating conflict, I can spend my time on myself however I want. It's not actually going to require anything from me. It's just going to require that I don't use my time to antagonize my neighbors. That's not loving your neighbor. There's an opposite side of this too, though. And I could see this in some of your eyes last week. And I I heard this in conversation. This is part of what I felt in talking about loving our neighbor is that sense of, oh man, I can't do this. I cannot love my neighbors. It's too much. I can't do it. I can't fit them into my life. I don't have the time. And that's, if you're saying I don't have the time to love my neighbor, there's probably two things we need to talk about to some degree. It's possible that we need to have the conversation about priorities and how we're investing time and what we're choosing to put on our plate. That could be it. It's also possible that even after you, all your priorities are in the right place, you still don't have much time for what you think neighboring is. And that's why we have to talk about what neighboring actually is, is and is not. Na- loving your neighbor does not mean making them your best friend. And if that's what you think I'm talking about and that's why you feel overwhelmed, that's legitimate. You do not have the time or the ability to make, if we're just going off of our magnets, the occupants of the eight houses close to you your best friends. It is not in your power for a few reasons. Number one, uh, these blocks were not left here by my son. I brought them for an illustration that has been very helpful to me. People are like Legos, okay? You have, see these, these, these um, bumps, I forget what they're called, but like this Lego piece, you have a limited number of connectors. You have a limited number of connectors for really close relationship, okay? And you can put a certain number of blocks on those connectors, and then you're full. And there really isn't room for another one. And if you were going to put the yellow one on, you'd have to take off the blue. I'm going to guess that you do not have the emotional connectors to make all your eight closest neighbors your best friends. Right? There is... We have to admit that there, this is why you can't love, actually actively love everybody in the world. You don't have the connectors. You're a, you're a limited person. Even Jesus had a limited number of connectors, right? Jesus had a circle that filled up his connectors for really close personal friendship. And then he had a wider circle of people who were his followers, who were his, his close followers. And then he had, he had that series of circles because Jesus was still a human being. So you can't just decide, I'm going to have the emotional capacity, let alone the time, to be best friends with everybody in my, in my neighborhood. Second, and more importantly, you don't have the ability to force anybody to be your friend. 
be your best friend, right? Like there is a level of compatibility that's required for you to have a close friendship with somebody. You've got to be compatible in some way. You've got to be, you know, and you cannot, you can't control that compatibility and you can't force someone to be your best friend. And so if your mission is now these have to be my social circle and they're the ones that I have to have over at my house all the time and our kids have to play together. We have to do all these things and I have to give up my best friends to, to be best friends with the people in my neighborhood. You don't even have the power to make all the people in your neighborhood your best friends. You don't have the power to make anyone your best friend. So that is not the command. Because also, hey, let me ask you this. What happened in the relationship between the good Samaritan and the injured man after the, after he was uh, left, after the man was healed and left the inn. What happened? What does Jesus tell us happened? Nothing, right? If Jesus tells us nothing about that, then that means that that part of the story is not relevant to determining whether the Samaritan loved his neighbor. The Samaritan loved his neighbor at the point that he took care of him in that encounter, and he didn't have to stay best friends with him for the rest of their lives in order to have loved his neighbor. So I would, I would love to find out that some of you got new best friends out of neighboring. That would be fantastic, but that is not the measure of success. You don't have to wait till you've made all your neighbors your best friends to check that box. Now, another way that we get into trouble is if we think that loving your neighbor means fixing all their problems. Loving your neighbor does not mean fixing all their problems. There's a chapter in one of the books that we're going to study that talks about having healthy boundaries. And sometimes as Christians, you know, as a Christian, I get that I have that radar that goes up like, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't don't weaken Jesus' command. Don't give us excuses not to do it. But I think this isn't so much giving you excuses not to love people as it is recognizing who's the Savior and who's not. Because we, will t- we may take on the burden to say, if I'm going to be neighbors to my friends, I have to solve every problem they bring to me every time. I have to be everything to everybody. And so in the books, they'll tell stories about somebody who was, just, who was genuinely needing money over and over and over again, and it became overwhelming. for the, Or a guy who would just walk right into their home at all hours of the night and those kinds of things, like unhealthy relationships. And I want us to notice, if the, if the Good Samaritan is our example, notice that there are, there are some limitations on what he does. And they're not limitations of love. He makes sure that the man is cared for. And he goes far out of his way to help the man. So he puts him on his donkey, takes him to an inn. We don't know if the inn is in the direction he was already going. It might have been back the other way. And he stays the night with them caring for him. But then what does he do? Because the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Why did he need to return? Because he finished his trip. Right? He was journeying somewhere. So he brought the man to the inn. He took care of him and made sure he was settled. And then he finished his trip. And he came back and settled the accounts. Now, he made sure the man was taken care of. But he didn't become all things to that man. Because none of us can actually be all things to everyone. And that's not what you're being asked to do. It doesn't mean that the instant you have to say no to someone for a good reason, you've lost, you've failed at the command. Now again, this is not to give us permission to to decide not to love our neighbors because the Good Samaritan still did far more than 
I've ever done for any of my neighbors. And he, he acted out of love, but he also didn't appoint himself savior. So what did he do? Now that we've talked about what loving your neighbor is not, what is loving your neighbor? Well, Jesus asked the lawyer, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the, who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now notice that the lawyer doesn't say the Samaritan. Now, some of the commentaries said, well, that's because he's, he's so racist against Samaritans that he's unwilling to call him a Samaritan. And that might be it. But notice what he chooses to call him. The one who had mercy. And that word in Greek, it can, it's, it's a bit broader. It doesn't fit exactly onto our word mercy because it includes mercy. But it's also, you could also say compassion. That this is a man who cared, the one who actually cared about the one on the ground and did something. He cared so much that he acted out of it. Now, we have compassion for people pretty naturally. We are naturally programmed to have compassion. And usually when you have compassion, you will act. But we don't always have compassion, right? That's why you know, our children learn emotional manipulation. Because my daughter is learning that there are certain ways to ask things that just melt my defenses. But she has to turn on the big, the big doe eyes and she has to say, Daddy, please. And, you know, she, it, it, my, the compassion isn't automatic, but it can be evoked in us, right? That's usually what compassion is, is that something happens to create an emotional reaction. But notice what Jesus says. He says, go and do. So he's not talking about just the natural compassion that we have, that we, just, we act on it when we feel it. What Jesus is saying is that loving your neighbor means being intentionally compassionate towards those around you. Intentionally compassionate. So being compassionate means what happened with the Good Samaritan. The other two men, they saw the man on the ground, and whatever they thought, Jesus doesn't give us details into their way of thinking, but whatever they thought, they did not see, they did not feel or see anything worthy of pulling them off of their path. They saw a distraction. They saw, um, you know, a potential, maybe a trap. Maybe the robbers are waiting around to catch whoever helps the man. Maybe they saw a, a danger of becoming ceremonially impure. Whatever it was, they didn't see a human being broken and bleeding and in need of help. Because if they had really seen that, if they had really had compassion, if they had sympathized with the man, they would have acted. And, and what it tells us in the story is that when the Samaritan saw the man, the Samaritan who's on the other side of a pretty significant social barrier, when he sees him, he had pity on him. And that's the first thing that the Samaritan did right. And so we, what it means to love your neighbor, basically is to be intentional about being compassionate. It means not just acting when it comes naturally to us to act, not just when you happen to feel something for somebody, but that we actually go out of our way, we are intentional, we are deliberate about recognizing we should have compassion on our neighbors. They are human beings that we've been called to love, and that's going to require us to sympathize and to act. That's what it means. Intentionally compassionate. 
And that word intentional is important. When Jesus says, go and do, because that means that you can't just wait for it to happen to you and figure, I'll figure it out when I, when I get there. I'll see it when I get there. Because I will tell you this, you will not see the needs around your neighborhood until you're looking for them. Most of the opportunities you have to love your neighbors will not come from finding one of them broken in a ditch. That's, when Jesus uses that example, he's, he's giving you an extreme example to make it very clear. Most opportunities we have to love our neighbors are not that obvious, right in your face, clear. So now I want to just look in a little bit more detail at what exactly, um, break it down a little bit into what it looked like for the Samaritan to have, be intentionally compassionate. Because the Samaritan, when he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Loving your neighbor means noticing and caring about them. It's really easy for us to treat uh, our neighbors as, um, I'm going to go skew young with this example, an NPC, a non-playable character. A non-playable character is when you're playing a video game, there are some characters that are controlled by the computer. And they're just there as people for you to talk to to send you on your next mission. Um, as opposed to if you're playing online and other players are actually people. I know at least one person is, is understanding what I'm talking about. Um, we see people almost as objects in our world. We don't think of them, we don't connect with them as people so much. So that's, and that can be that level where we just, oh, my neighbor is that person that I wave to as I go in. Because that's what you do when you see another human being. You wave, but I don't need to know anything about you. I don't need, I don't maybe don't notice whether you didn't wave back. Um, we will, we just, we just go on our lives with blinders and people are part of the scenery. And that might be what happened with the part of what happened with the priest and the Levite. They just simply saw the man as part of the scenery that they should avoid. But the Samaritan saw the man as a person. He noticed him and he cared about what was happening with him. Even though if the man hadn't been beat up, he might have, that, that man on the ground might have spat on that Samaritan. And yet, the fact that he was broken on the ground in need meant that the, man, the Samaritan cared about him. But he didn't just care about him. He didn't just say, oh, that's so sad. I'm going to say a prayer for you and then move on. He acted. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. I got a little ahead of myself earlier. This is where I was going to point out. We don't know where the inn was. So he stopped. He got off his donkey, which means involving some danger because the bandits could still be around. He took care of the man. He bandaged him, maybe muddied or bloodied his garments. And then he put him on his donkey and he took him to an inn. What direction was the inn? Doesn't matter. Might have been back the other way. But he took him where he needed to go to take care of him. Guarantee you, this was an inconvenience for this man. It was not how he was planning to spend his day, and it probably put him at least a day late for his travels. We don't, really, we don't travel at the same rate they did back then. Can you imagine being a day late for your business meeting? Not an hour or two, a day. You, the meeting was on Wednesday, and you got there on Thursday because you took care of this guy. Loving our neighbor means being open to interruption and inconvenience. Because here's the thing, if you do wave to your neighbor as you're going from your car into the house and you notice something wrong with them, one of the reasons I think why we don't want to notice that there might be something wrong with them is because then I have to go and talk to them before I go into the house. You know what? I know what Casey made for dinner. All I want to do is go in and eat. 
or it's been a long day at work and I just want to lay down. I am peopled out. I, the last thing I want to do is go talk to this person. I'm an introvert and it's awkward for me and I know it's going to sound weird and I'm going to, I'm going to hate the way I, t- the things I, like I'm going to think I sounded like an idiot. It's going to be horrible. I don't want to do it. Right? That's, we have to be open to the interruption, the inconvenience of actually have, having another person play a real role in our lives. To say, okay, um, I'll be in in a second. I'm going to go talk to this person. Or maybe I'm going to invite this person in to eat dinner with us. Whatever that looks like. But some of us, sometimes our obstacle, and probably what was going on with the priest and the Levite, is we are simply not available for interruption or inconvenience. I have somewhere I got to be, I have a schedule. I'm just, nope, sorry, not available. Schedule is closed. I have, I need to be inside, don't have time for it. Now, we always have to prioritize, right? Like if Casey called me to come home because the kids are screaming and puking everywhere and the house is burning down and she needs me to come in and, and help her restore order, I'm probably not going to go over and pry my neighbor with questions to find out how they're going and why their wave wasn't quite as, as happy as normal, right? Like we still prioritize, we do triage, but we have to be open. We have to have an attitude of openness to interruption and inconvenience. If we, aren't, if we are unwilling to be interrupted or to be inconvenienced, we're not going to be able to love our neighbors. Then it says, He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return... I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, what we've already talked about is the fact that he finished his trip. But at the same time, before he finished his trip, he stayed the night with this man. He paid for his hotel room. He did the closest he could to hosting the man in his own home. He's on a trip. can't bring him home. You bring him to an inn, and you pay the bill, and you take care of the man. What the Samaritan is practicing in this moment is two things generosity, and hospitality. And loving our neighbors means practicing generosity and hospitality. Did you know that hospitality is a virtue, is a biblical virtue? Did you know, <laughs> I don't want to put some, a certain group of people on the spot, but did you know that hospitality is a, a qualification for being an elder? Having people in your home is a qualification for being an elder. It was important enough to Paul to put it in the list. Because actually, it's not just elders. It's part of being a Christian. It is a command. Generosity and hospitality are both commands for Christians in general. One of the ideas that I'm toying with is after we do our neighboring emphasis, to continue it with a hospitality emphasis. Uh, but what hospitality means, notice, hospitality does not mean being the best entertainer in, in town. It doesn't mean bringing somebody over and having the house perfectly clean and getting out the good china and having the nicest dinner. If that's it, Casey and I are not going to be able to be hospitable for a while. We have three kids under four. House isn't going to be clean if you come over. I mean, it'll be some level of messy. We'll try and get the level low. There's going to be toys on the ground, right? 
Hospitality doesn't mean entertaining people. Hospitality means welcoming them into your home. So for us, hospitality might mean that we invite you over for dinner and you get to be part of the mess, right? You get to be at the dinner table while the kids are covering themselves in spaghetti and you get to step over the toys that cover the floor and try and keep your footing and you get to be involved in our chaos and be welcomed into our family, that could be hospitality for us. That, that is what hospitality is going to look like for us. And there's power in that. I can tell you, I had a, a really, one of the closest relationships I've ever had in my life was my, my best friend from college. He and his wife, he got married, and I was still single. But once a week, I would come over and get to just hang out with them, and we would have dinner and watch a couple of TV shows that we liked. And they never did anything special for me. I would often show up, and the kids are running around naked because they would not put on clothes. And, I sh- and the first words out of his wife's mouth would be, hey, can you grab that kid and make him do this? Or so, like, there was no special treatment. But it was wonderful to be a part of that. And it was an incredible blessing. And so what we're called to as loving our neighbors is not being entertainers, but it does involve being generous with our resources because he paid for the man's healing, right? It will involve us being generous with things that we have. Might even, for me, honestly attest, offering people the drinks or the food in the fridge that I wanted for myself, right? Like, you ever have that temptation? Like, yeah, we have water and milk, and uh, I have the soda, you know, something like that. But it means being generous, and it means being hospitable. That's one of the ways that we find time to be good neighbors, is you don't carve time to do something different. You invite people into what you're already doing. That's sharing life, and that's loving your neighbor. That's being intentionally compassionate. And that's, that's what this man did. And then that, that encounter ended, and, he went, and they both went off in different directions. Because again, this isn't about making lifelong friendships necessarily. That may come out of it, but it's about loving people in the season in which they are near you simply because God's put them in your life. That's what we're called to do. So here's where I want to land the plane for us today. God wants you to intentionally, actively care for the people who live around you. That's it. It's more than not being a nuisance. It's more than just praying for them and never speaking to them. And it's more than just being on good terms with them. It is more than that. But it is not fixing all their problems. It is not being best friends with them necessarily. Those could be involved, but that's not the measure. The measure is, were you intentionally, actively, did you intentionally, actively care for them? Did you intentionally, actively care about them? Did you love them? Checking because I know this slide didn't get up. I didn't update this slide to say what what you have. Um, God wants you to be their neighbor, not their savior. Because if we take the burden on ourselves to say that I'm going to save my neighbors from everything, you take on more than you're capable of. Now, it's important, it's essential that you introduce them to their Savior because there is someone who can be their Savior. It's not us. 
which again is not an excuse to say, I just don't want to love my neighbor there. But it is permission to say, hey, I can't love my neighbor in this way. Or, I, I can't love my neighbor by fixing that problem. Or fixing that problem for them wouldn't actually be loving them. That's a possibility too. You don't have to do everything for everybody. But here's the thing that I want you to remember, and this is what the entire next sermon is going to be about. If you obey this command, God, sorry, God uses, and that is completely wrong. Here's what it, you write in your notes there. God uses neighbors to change the world. That's what I should say. God uses neighbors to change the world. We're going to talk next week about how that, is, that has been true throughout history, and it is true today. That the most powerful thing that comes out of um, the spread of the gospel, what has really transformed our world in the last 2,000 years, has been God's people loving their neighbors. It can completely change our world. And we talked this morning in our Sunday school class about how I want us to expand our vision of what this church can do in our community simply by being actively, intentionally compassionate about the people around us. So I'd love for you to, continue to join us for the discussion that we're going to have next week at 9 a.m. And also I want to remind you that the challenge that we're, I'm giving everyone is to grab one of these magnets. If you didn't get one, they're by the front double doors and write down the names of the eight, of the occupants of the eight homes nearest you. Probably not going to be a grid like this, but the eight homes nearest you, learn their names and start praying for them. That's your challenge.